Kulaksaka, Vanakam. To why indigenous words and ideas with special guest, colleague, friend, homie, Ani or Anisha Sankar, and I'll let her introduce herself. Kia ora, vanakam. Yes, yeah, so I'm Ani and I'm a PhD student at the University of Auckland. Well, my ancestral lands are in the south of India, um, where both my parents are from, and I grew up there, born in Chennai, moved to Aotearoa, New Zealand when I was five. Yeah, grew up in Nainai in Wellington. And I'm currently here studying, teaching, which is how I know Daniel. Yeah. I don't really know what my PhD is going to be on. I don't have a specific topic, but generally I kind of am really interested in critiques of colonial capitalism. And I'm really interested in critical theory and I'm interested in philosophy and thinking about how we relate to knowledge, how we relate to history and politics, um, how we relate to each other and how these ways that we relate to these things are mediated by these systems of power like colonialism and capitalism and patriarchy and how these systems kind of like seep into our into the way that we navigate the world do you do you want to try to take a, an attempt to kind of try to explain what colonial capitalism is yeah sure so I mean, the way that I kind of understand it is that we live within these the system, this like evil, oppressive system of domination and exploitation and racialization, which I've just I call it colonial capitalism in my work. Capitalism being the way that um, like the mode of production in our society, so the way that resources are distributed, the way that property is privately owned the way that corporations have a particular status um, and ability to control natural resources that we should all have access to. And yeah, we have to sell our labor in order to survive, which is just ludicrous to me. But then also, so that's like generally how capitalism, like the basic ways that capitalism functions, but also how it relies on colonialism and the way that it is able to persist is because of the colonial violence that it enacted and continues to enact today. The way that capitalism has relied on yeah, the outsourcing of labor to the third world or to its colonies. The way that, yeah, I guess requires racialization for labor to, for people to sell, sell their labor. It's like thinking about like who, who does what. Yeah. In a sense, like who's consuming, yeah. who's producing, yeah. and, and the power that's involved in that. Yeah. Is that, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And I think the point that I hope people that listen take away as well is that this is a very new phenomenon in human history. Yeah. Which yeah, means yeah. that it can also be changed and yeah. it wasn't always like this. And yeah. if you listen to past episodes, hopefully that has prepared you for what we want to just get into now, yeah, yeah. which is just thinking, identifying this and that yeah. how it consumes so much of, I mean, maybe could you think of an example that kind of how this is part of everyday life and we don't even think about it how colonial capitalism yeah. is yeah i mean like it it structures the world in such a nuanced way that we don't often come face to face with it i mean that's how power works right it's invisible we don't always come face to face with what it looks like or what it's doing in a particular moment but it's constantly there shaping our identity and shaping our experience of the world and often it's a very violent experience for people who aren't middle class white cis heteronormative whatever yeah the way that it 
works is that the world kind of isn't built for all of us in the same way. The world's built for us to have different experiences. And there's moments where you come across it. I mean, there's moments where you come face to face with racism um, or with power or oppression. But for the most part, it just operates in the background. So like if you think about anything that's normal. Yeah. Or that, not that it is. Yeah. But if you think about the stuff that you don't think about, often that's where you're going to find this invisible power. Yeah. And that's where, like, Sar Ahmed has this quote about um, when you go against the mainstream and what is the mainstream if not this like the flow of a river and it's pushing you in one direction and you only really realize when you try to turn around and go upstream and you go against the flow and then you realize how much force is actually invested into you going with the flow of things so you're asking people to do scary stuff <laughs> turn upstream <laughs> turn upstream <laughs> go against the flow very matrix <laughs> yeah <laughs> awesome uh, and but so, when you do go against the flow you if, if you're going with the flow of stuff you don't realize how much power is invested in pushing you to go that way that's what power is you don't realize how it's working and what directions it's pushing you until you have moments where you turn around or try to turn around that's a really powerful metaphor you know think about how it's carrying you yeah. Right. Like you don't have to paddle. Yeah. You're, you're being carried yeah. through this system. And if you begin to question what that does to you, it's going to be very disorienting as well. Totally. And so maybe this helps us kind of go into one of the things that I, I wanted you to share as well, because Anisha wrote this really awesome article. You can find it on Pantograph Punch on gaslighting. Mm. Um, and I, I didn't know what gaslighting was until like it recently yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I always knew what it was yeah <laughs> and so the, to give an example of that like yeah. how in a sense this concept of gaslighting yeah keeps you in the flow yeah or keeps pushing you in the flow and when you look around it's there to push you back into that flow of the mainstream yeah do you mind maybe just kind of yeah introducing that idea what it means yeah, and maybe yeah. a little bit about what you yeah so the, I mean, the term gaslighting itself comes from this play in 1938, and it's like a mystery thriller play, and it's really creepy. There's this, like, man who tries to convince his wife that she's going crazy by pretending to, like, leave the house in the daytime and then, like, sneaking back and, like, putting his belongings in her bag and then accusing her of stealing them when he comes home. And she, like, convinces herself she's a kleptomaniac. And he tells her he's... Yeah, he'll go out at night and then he'll come back and creep around in the attic. And by turning the gas lights in the attic on, by turning the lights in the attic on, gas to the lights downstairs dim. But because she thinks that he's gone out, she thinks she's imagining the lights dimming. And he's actually doing all of this to distract her so he can, like find some like hidden jewels or something in the attic or there's some murder or something i don't know but yeah it's this like creepy gendered thing of convincing someone they're crazy if they start to question their experience of their lived reality and i found i find that this term kind of is so powerful because this is what our experience of the world tends to be like what we think is normal is often quite violent and quite criminal yeah i was sharing with Andy earlier that when trigger warnings first came out, for yeah, example, yeah, like I kind of, I was a little bit critical of them, yeah. not not for the mainstream reasons of being critical of them, but I was just kind of like, yeah, oh, like do you guys 
oh, I'm sorry, you have a protected little life that you don't know that yeah. this happens in the world. And I had that kind of attitude because of the things that I'd experienced in my life yeah. or the things that I had witnessed or the things that I was aware of or the things that I had inherited. And over time, I started to realize that, wait a minute, like what trigger warnings did for me was over time, it helped me realize that, wait a minute, like that type of experience, that type of traumatic event isn't normal. Or at yeah. least it shouldn't be normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it helped me realize, like, wait, whoa, like, there was something yeah. I needed to sort out that I wasn't able to see yeah. because I was led to believe that that was normal for somebody that looked like me or lived in the neighborhood that I lived yeah. in. Or that, for example, the type of violence that you grew up around seeing or hearing about, like, as if that was supposed... Like, you get to the point where you feel like that's normal. And trigger warnings helped me realize that, wait a minute, like, those types of traumas should not be normal yeah. and should not be okay. Yeah. And I felt like, in a sense, I was being gaslit as well. But again, realizing that, that there's a lot of layers to that mm. in, in thinking about, you know, how we're made to feel like we're crazy sometimes. Yeah. When we question racism or sexism yeah. or, or whatever, having yeah. colonialism. You yeah. Know? Uh, there's always that, oh, get over it. Yeah. Which is a way of kind of gaslighting. Totally. Like, oh, you know, there's no problem here. Oh, look at this person. They say there's no problem, so there's no problem, right? Yeah. Instead of actually listening. Yeah. There's another Sa um, Ahmed quote that I love um, in this book that she writes called Living a Feminist Life. And it's exactly, it describes this feeling that you've pointed out. But she imagines that you're sitting at a dinner table, having dinner with your family and friends, and everyone's kind of like laughing and having a good time and then someone makes a sexist joke and everyone's like laughing at it and then when you are kind of like hey hold on and you point out that sexist joke you become the problem you name this when you name a problem you become the problem that's her quote but the example kind of illustrates how when you point out something that you think is wrong all of the attention comes on you as opposed to the person who made the sexist joke or as opposed to the people who are laughing at it and then you kind of feel like you're the crazy one because you're the one who's disrupted the flow of the conversation you've disrupted the laughter you've it's that moment of turning upstream when you name a problem and then you're gaslit into thinking because of everyone's collective response you're gaslit into thinking that yeah you're the problem oh man it's a really powerful concept to think about you know, and it's also why it's scary yeah. to name a problem. Because yeah, because you... all of the burden falls on you to defend yeah. that. and to... It individualizes yeah, right. the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes it your problem as opposed to a systemic one or a question of power. And so in a sense, it's a process of removing accountability Yeah. from power. Yeah. Yeah. And, and focusing on more vulnerable or those with less power in the particular circumstance yeah. and often on the victims so it's a it's a victim blaming yeah then paradigm yeah and so if you've experienced that or seen that this is um what gaslighting has a tendency of doing so it can be a hard thing to get out of yeah that maybe you can share a little bit about as well is the role of like when you find I don't know a critical theory so or critical yeah. thinking or ideas when you find ideas that 
that affirm that you're not crazy, how that can be a powerful tool yeah. of liberation. I mean, I remember growing up too, like I had suppressed so many things to survive in the environment that I was growing up in yeah. because I was tired of being, I didn't want to be a problem. Yeah. And, and it wasn't until I started reading stuff, finally, was, it took, the sad thing is it took university. So one of the things that we want to do with this is right, make it available to people who are not in university or who haven't had access to it yet. Because if you don't, then this is also like, you're keeping me from the stuff that could liberate me Yeah. by keeping it in this kind of elite space that yeah, I have to pay yeah. to go to. And I've had the privilege to be able to be in yeah. here. But when I started reading some of these things, I was like, wait a minute, I'm not crazy. Totally. Like there is racism, there is colonization, and it does impact us. I mean, that's why I find... Um theory so powerful is because it gives me like we were saying before it gives you language to explain um, and to name something which is happening which is an to be able to name something is a, a really affirming because it's one way in which we can kind of assert our agency or power in a situation is by naming what's happening but yeah it was real interesting because my friend Emma had put me on to Sarah Ahmed and her blog the same time that I had this incident at uni last year. It was about a year ago. And yeah, the situation was just that I was teaching this class and this was five days after the like white supremacist terrorist attack um, in March last year. And we hadn't really been briefed about how to like talk about the massacre in our classes and so I kind of just went into my class wanting to talk about white supremacy because it's a class on sociology of violence and it seemed like, you know, what good is a class like this if we can't talk about violence as it's unfolding in real life around us? And so I went in talking to my students about white supremacy and getting them to engage with white supremacy as a topic and as like a mechanism of power and then this one white student just got so just had this like racist outburst because we had I mean I think it was like in naming white supremacy he felt like threatened in some way or his identity felt threatened in some way and yeah he just said a bunch of racist shit and then he followed it up with this like racist email just like horrific stuff and then when I reported this incident to the university kind of management it was just like institutional gaslighting it was like on every level management and different people coming back convincing me that I was the problem and I felt like by naming this problem by naming the student as the problem I had suddenly become the problem it was individualized the the burden to defend myself or the burden to defend my identification of the problem, just like it totally fell on my shoulders. Like the university's first suggestion was that I don't teach the class anymore and that a different teacher comes to teach the student. And then just like, yeah, at every stage being re-traumatized by the process. And they just tried their hardest to convince me that I was crazy. But yeah, the same time all of this was happening, my friend Emma put me onto Sarah Ahmed's blog, which is where I was discovering her research on living a feminist life and um, complaints, and she follows different complaints processes that um, people have made. 
she kind of focuses more on like sexual harassment um, or violence. But when you report an instance of sexual harassment or violence, how workplaces manage that and deal with it is also like it also corresponds to institutional gaslighting. Um, yeah, the way that they deal with it makes you feel like you're crazy. But reading about how she theorizes this at the same time that I was going through it was so affirming and so healing. And I just felt like I had that she gave me a framework to deal with what I was going through. And she helped convince me that I wasn't crazy and that this is a problem of power and institutional abuse of power. We want to have a better world. Yeah. We're going to have to inconvenience the one that we're in. Yeah. And in doing so, that is going to mean we're going to face gaslighting. Yeah. We're going to face that river of power that is trying to keep things in flow. That story that you shared is, is very powerful. Um, and then that you accessed it, you had a friend share it with you. So what, what's the name of this blog? Feminist Killjoy. And so if you're interested in checking it out, go look for it. You know, if you're an inconvenience yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because you're raising up questions or you're trying to better understand things or you want to, you know, do that, then you're not alone. Yeah. And um, in the world that demonizes, you know, disruption yeah. and misfits yeah. and, you know, Mutants and cyborgs. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's where maybe that's what we want to do is like, yeah. is get you to remember that. Mutants are cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> think about X Men or yeah. the misfit is the is the solution to yeah. disrupting a harmful world. Yeah. Um, you know the the outcast, the outlaw. You know. Freak nation. <laughs> exactly is the yeah. is the pathway or is a pathway yeah. towards alternative futures or or mm. healing in the present, right? Yeah. Or or a, a different way, and so kind of in that light. Wondering if you're willing to share a little bit about the the role of having courage and creativity and imagination, because some of this stuff, this is heavy, yeah. right? Like dealing with gaslighting, and you found power through reading other things that were affirming yeah. your position and giving you language. Now you're giving language as well. What is the role do you see in kind of courage, creativity, and imagination to? create elsewheres or imagine elsewheres um, or maybe why is elsewhere the word that we want to think about as well yeah we used elsewhere and otherwise yeah because we didn't want to we didn't want to talk about a future yeah that was like yeah i mean like this idea of linear time we've talked about like this idea of the past being in the past was like a historical thing and then there's this present and then there's this future i mean that just is so arbitrary and it's it doesn't make sense to a lot of us because this particular narrative of time is a western one and it's one that corresponds with capitalism and with like the civilizing projects of colonialism even this development of countries that corresponds to a particular narrative of time like we're constantly developing according to capitalism and capitalist standards that just doesn't make sense and if we want to be deviant and disrupt then we also have to disrupt that dominant way of thinking about time and thinking about the future and i mean right now the future doesn't belong to us the future belongs to the capitalists and it belongs to the colonial project 
um, because it's all corresponding to their vision of what the world will look like. And I love breaking that down in playful ways and thinking about, you know, collapsing time entirely and holding different temporalities and different ways of understanding time that include the past and the future and the present all at once. And they can hold all of these different histories and trajectories of the world. Um, which is why I like this idea of elsewhere. It's not like, it's, that's our future. It's elsewhere. Um, it's not the future of the world that we're currently in. Yeah. yeah. It's like finding wormholes yeah. or, or pathways or portals to different realms yeah. and different possibilities from the one that we're currently in. Yeah. It makes me think of Kyle White yeah. who, who writes about the dystopian present. Yeah. Um, where yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. you know, there's, this is a huge theme in pop culture now too, yeah. right? Like zombie apocalypse and end of the world and these totalitarian yeah. kind of notions of complete demise and it's like, well, who's worried about that? Because we've already been through our apocalypse yeah, and exactly. dystopia. And a lot of us are still in a dystopian reality yeah. now. Yeah. And so, like, if we're, if that's your future, you know, and we're being forced into it, like, uh, it looks even worse for yeah. where we're at. So, in yeah. a sense, a critique of um, the, the so-called modern world and yeah. finding different realms or imagining different realms yeah. elsewhere, yeah. otherwise, yeah. to which can be now as well. Yeah. Because if we're constantly waiting, we're never get right. Like. Yeah. Some people, if you're struggling to breathe, like the linear time is a privilege that yeah. you just don't have. <laughs> yeah. And so I think thinking yeah. about the role. So we had a conversation with Cassie Hartnott. around imagining elsewhere. Yeah. And one of the things that she brought up was that one of the things that colonialism does is it tries to strip us of our power to imagine and yeah, of our creativity. Right. And yeah. I was like, it just really resonated with me. It's so powerful in thinking about um, the role that creativity plays yeah. in doing something else, yeah. right? And so if we're constantly in this mainstream yeah, yeah, yeah. river that's oh, constantly yeah. disciplining us and making us think in certain ways and do things in certain ways and it's then punishing you for being divergent or questioning it or yeah. going upstream, it's it's in a sense removing our creativity and our imagination. Yeah. Our possibilities as human beings yeah. to do otherwise. Yeah. And to do elsewhere. Yeah. And sometimes when we critique, sometimes the response that we get, the gaslighting yeah. response is like, well what are we gonna do then? Yeah, you can't yeah, get rid yeah. of that. What are we gonna do? Yeah. And it's just like have we really lost our imagination and yeah. creativity? Or in many cases, yeah. yeah. But how can we regain it? Yeah. To, to what are your thoughts on that? I, know you're super I mean, you've like said most of it there, but yeah, I think that the you just really reminded me of the importance of optimism and hope when we're doing the disruption that we're engaging in now. And the only reason that we're able to engage in any kind of disruption of this current flow is by having this optimism and hope for a different world and for a better world. Um, for the elsewhere and creativity and imagination is what fuels that hope I think it's why I mean I'm so obsessed with like sci-fi stuff like I it, it it's playful and it lets you kind of play with these different ideas of what worlds could look like and I really treasure them and cling to them because it's what like fuels my fight 
No, awesome. And that's so hopefully we'll encourage people right there. We're, we're critiquing, but we're also imagining. Um, yeah, we're doing, yeah, because there's a tendency for critique um, to be like a kind of dis destructive, have this destructive energy where if you're constantly, I've found that if I'm constantly critiquing power and colonial capitalism and patriarchy, then I, it, it tends to get obsessive and I just feel really, really upset and down and depressed and low about the world and about society and my experience of it and it's easy to get like for, for that to just cave in on you but at the same time there's this really productive I mean I do think that we need that but at the same time we have to think about how to generate new ideas and how to produce new worlds um, and to hold the destructive and the productive at the same time I think is a re really important thing to remember to do I love that one of the things that comes to mind for me is uh, the the Winak or the one of the Maya concepts of zero. Yeah. Your welcome world. We had it before other so-called civilized peoples in other parts of the world, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we call it Waish or Tah, and it embodies both. So it's not like this good evil split. It embodies the, the yeah both the destruction and creation simultaneously yeah. and that both destructive and creative powers are what's held in the tension of zero, right? Yeah. Which is ultimately, you can't have... It's like a balance. It's a balance. Yeah. And that balance is both limited and limitless yeah. at the same time because yeah, yeah. it's nothing and everything. I mean, it's cosmic balance, right? Like that's the universe. It's nothing and it's everything and it's without beginning and end. It all begins and ends through that. Yeah. Through that, through both. Yeah. Like you, so it can't be one or the other. So I like how you mentioned that. That, you know, it's not that we're just Debbie Downers, but like we need to embrace that as much as we also need to embrace the creativity, the imaginative. Yeah, the, and they both can't exist without each other. Exactly, and so it's it's holding the tension of both, yeah. where it doesn't have to be one or the other, but that you can have critical hope. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Just one or the other. It's not just oversimplified hope or, you know, obsessive uh, critique that yeah. consumes you. It's it, they, they hold a balance together, yeah. um, which is cosmic. cultural ideas around creation and destruction yeah. and finding ways to to see the connection globally locally and vice versa yeah so I don't know if you mind maybe sharing a little bit about thinking about relationality as an elsewhere that we can begin now yeah I mean so the article was like exploring um, my relationship as someone living in the diaspora my relationship to my ancestral home of India, which is currently a really, yeah, violent place, and we're seeing the rise of fascism 
kind of accelerate that that this rise has accelerated this year since the new year but i'm really interested because a lot of people in the diaspora here they kind of seem to like practice their cultural or ethnic identity but without relating to the politics of our homeland or they fetishize parts of our cultural identity and relate to the nationalism of our like the mainstream nationalism of our homeland and so there's this weird thing of like not really engaging relationally globally with politics i wrote that article because i was struggling to um yeah find a relationship to the politics of my homeland that kind of made sense to me and so i draw on this caribbean poet and scholar edward glisson um and he's got this book called the poetics of relation which is just really beautiful he talks about like errantry so like when you or like exile when you when you go somewhere else what kind of framework can you have for being relationally minded with the space and place and other people that you come across and he kind of puts forward this idea of rhizomatic roots and rhizomatic roots are like they spread like rhizomes they're like they spread through the air and through the water and it's not like just one root in the in the ground um but it's like something that's constantly evolving and contingent on what it comes across and so it's more fluid it's a more fluid way of being in the world and i think that that kind of gives us a really beautiful framework for thinking about politics globally um it can be contingent on new developments and as opposed to static and yet if we kind of take that and operate according to a poetics of relation in terms of our politics today then acknowledging rising fascism in india for me would also mean acknowledging the colonial project going on in aotearoa today um and seeing how these are these systems of oppression are interconnected um and how my identity as someone as a south asian person living in aotearoa today how my identity is implicated in in them on that note like the last uh thing i want to ask you is what do you critically hope could be with a collective energy that saw those connections and at the same time the possibilities that could emerge through the relationships um that are potentially catalyzed that yeah. are all around us i mean i think that stuff is all contributing to like if if we could embrace a different way of relating to each other to politics and to land to water then we would have this like greater momentum and solidarity with which we could kind of overcome these structures of oppression and move collectively towards these new visions and and in that movement new visions would be constantly created um i think that it like gives us space to dream together and to yeah create new ideas and yeah does that make sense yeah i feel like it, that's one of the things that i like of what you're doing because yeah. i feel like that's also what i find is helping me out yeah. in my work like i work yeah. with people who are closely related in experience but are different kinds of people than my kinds of ancestral people yeah. and but that difference has actually been very powerful because yeah. because we have different problems that are connected yet similar 
that's allowed me to learn yeah in a space that doesn't deal with the stuff that I have to deal with in other spaces yeah. and vice versa does that make sense like those totally I mean I think that's what's so important about being relation like this poetics of relation is that it opens up a deeply transform like a way of being in the world that's constantly changing because you're constantly responsive in a meaningful way to everything that you encounter and you acknowledge it with the respect that it kind of demands and it, it leaves you feeling transformed in some way like it like that experience or that encounter if it is deeply relational then you leave being a little bit different to how you were before and I think that's the importance of this relationality it's like you're letting yourself be transformed by the world as opposed to operating how the world how colonial capitalism kind of demands that you operate which is a fucking robot like a static robot who's just going with the flow of everything but if you turn around and you really like engage with people of different communities and can articulate your own struggle and can listen to theirs like you said there's a healing that can happen when you're acknowledging the different experiences but that's a it can be healing because it's truly relational choice uh, hopefully folks take away you know like if you're a misfit you ain't crazy you're not crazy um, freak nation <laughs> represent <laughs> um, imagine elsewhere is yeah. possible uh, reclaim your creativity and by just being mindful yeah. of ourselves and our identity and each other yeah can bring us into meaningful relationships yeah. that are part of the transformation yeah. um, that we can have here and now. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, kia ora, kia ora. and Nandri. Nandri, thank you.